So the reading comes from Luke chapter 1, verse 1, which, so Luke 1, chapter 1, verse 1, page 1,025. Uh, 1, so 1,025, if you're looking at the NIV Church Bibles. You might want to look for 1,024, since at the top of 1,025 it just says Luke. So Luke 1, chapter 1, verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. This is a word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Are we ready to roll? Well, uh, do be carrying on those conversations, maybe at the end of the service or uh, over our fellowship lunch. You're very welcome to come to that. Um, there's just one comment here. The behaviour of the church is disunity and caving into the zeitgeist. Well, let's just pray, shall we? As we come to God's word that God the Holy Spirit would speak to us, as we were thinking about last week, that we might be given the convictions that stand the test. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you that you were and are God incarnate, God as a human being, so that you could speak words which we can understand, words that which were remembered and recorded by those who heard and saw what you did, your apostles. Lord, we praise you and thank you that we have before us words that are inspired by your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, we pray that as we look at these words, your Holy Spirit, Almighty God, would be our teacher, that he would help me to speak words which are helpful that point to the Lord Jesus and that we would all have that knowledge in our hearts of you speaking to each and every one of us. We ask this for your glory's sake. Amen. Well, I think it's fair to say that the things that cause greatest doubt amongst Christians or those looking at Christian faith are often deeply emotional things. The suffering in the world that seems to be meaningless. Temptations to sin that are unremitting. Mental health issues that simply won't go away. Things that we are wounded by in the church, the sin of other Christians. The weakness of the church. Like waves in a tempestuous sea, these things break over us, leaving us spluttering for spiritual air. The emotions that we encounter are not rational they they run very deep don't they and we feel out of our depth and it's tempting to think that the way to certainty must be equally emotional an experience of god that is so overwhelming that we cannot but trust him or healing from unremitting pain or deliverance from temptation and mental health issues that is so freeing that they become a thing of the past an experienced rather than a chosen forgiveness that melts the hearts of others as well as ourselves. And of course, God can do all these things. 
But how can we be certain if those things have not happened? Do we have to throw out our minds to be certain, like Alice in Wonderland, believe 12 impossible things before breakfast? Is the Christian faith based on fairy tales, an imaginary friend? See, if we're looking for assurance and certainty from felt experience alone, I think we're missing out on the greatest source of certainty, the conviction that the Holy Spirit gives. The conviction that the Holy Spirit gives. It's not that emotions don't matter in the New Testament. They do. Peace, joy, delight, praise, thanksgiving. But I think there's a danger to think that Christian certainty is purely experiential. There is an overlap between our experiences of God and the revelation of God in the pages of the New Testament, the apostolic foundation that we were thinking about last week, Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. You see, the New Testament is more interested in helping us to understand spiritual words, words of the Spirit. Remember John 6, 63 from last week? The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. Human words that Jesus spoke are spirit from the divine spirit of God, and they are life. They bring eternal life to people like you and me. So convictions that are sustained by the Holy Spirit, which, yes, flood our lives with fresh feelings and affections of the soul, if you like, come to us through what seems to be a weak even intellectual approach of understanding the words of the Bible. We're starting a series today in Luke's Gospel, and um, I'm really looking forward to getting into the, the Gospel of Luke as a church. Um, we're, we're starting today, uh, and this autumn term will be going uh, through the first nine chapters. We're, we'll be sort of delaying chapters one and two, because they're, sort of, they're sort of Christmas passages, so we'll leave those for Christmas, and we'll come back to them. But the rest we'll cover next year sometime, so chapters one to nine up to sort of the end of November, and then at some point, probably in the summer, uh, the rest of the Gospel of Luke. And uh, the aim is to equip us so that we get to know our Gospel really well, that we can share with others, maybe read with them one-to-one, or uh, help one another in our discipleship. But why Luke? Why, why have uh, I chosen Luke. Well, Luke is particularly concerned in his two-volume work, Luke Acts, because they kind of go together, how outsiders, people outside the church of the day, become insiders. How Gentiles in the first century become fully part of the family of God that Jesus has initiated. There's also, uh, another purpose, so Luke is particularly concerned in thinking about outsiders, those who may in that time have been outsiders. Women, the poor, the downtrodden, those excluded. So that's why I've chosen Luke, because I think it, it, it's not that the other Gospels aren't great, they're all great, uh, but this is particularly helpful as we think about a community which is open to outsiders, to anybody coming in and becoming a full part of God's family. Now, another emphasis in Luke is that he wants to develop Christian certainty based on the plan of God. So look with me at verse 4. He, he writes to Theophilus, who's the patron who probably funded him writing the book, and he says in verse 4, so that you may know 
the certainty of the things you've been taught. In other words, he wants Theophilus and any Christian who reads this, or anybody who's investigating the Christian faith, to be certain about the things that have been taught by Jesus. And the word translated certainty, it means security, safety. Like a keep in the center of a castle would keep the inhabitants of the castle safe from attack, or or like a port keeps the boats safe from the storm. That is the image that is conjured up by the word that Luke uses. Whatever had shaken Theophilus's certainty as most likely a Gentile, Luke writes his gospel to produce certainty. Christian safety, Christian security, Christian confidence, ways in which we can be those who don't doubt through what life throws at us, but continue to be certain. So two points this morning. We can be certain, whether we've been Christians for years or we're just investigating the Christian faith for the first time, we can be certain that what we read in the pages of the New Testament is true. Why? Because firstly, Jesus Christ fulfills the Old Testament. Jesus Christ fulfills the Old Testament. And secondly, Jesus Christ was witnessed by servants of the word. Jesus Christ was witnessed by servants of the word. And both these things come to us by the power of God himself, the power of the Holy Spirit. So firstly, Jesus Christ fulfills the Old Testament. Look with me at verse 1. Many, Luke writes, have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, made full among us. The first thing that Luke thinks will help Theophilus with whatever he's facing, indeed anyone, any Christian or anyone investigating the Christian faith, is that the proclamation of Jesus Christ is a fulfillment of thousands of years of history recorded in the Old Testament. He knows that this will help Theophilus because for Jesus it was where he went to help the disciples Keep, keep your finger in, in Luke chapter 1 and just flick with me back to, or forward, sorry, to Luke uh, 24, the end of Luke's gospel. It's always helpful when, uh, if you're reading a, a book of the Bible to see what it starts with and where it finishes, because that's often very helpful. It gives you an idea of what the whole book is about. It starts off with fulfillment. Where does it finish? So Luke chapter 24, verse 45. Sorry, I'll begin at 44. He said to them, this is, well, so just a bit of context. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's in the upper room. He's just eaten some barbecued fish to prove that he's not a ghost. He's a physical, real, raised human being who can just appear at will. And then he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. In the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. These are astonishing words. Has anyone you have ever met said, yep, whole Old Testament is all about me. I mean, that's either incredibly arrogant 
to say that creation and Abraham and Moses and David and Daniel and Isaiah and Malachi and all the prophets are all about me or Jesus is actually speaking the truth. He's saying that from the beginning of creation, through all the prophets, they're all pointing to him and his identity and who he is. That by his death, he was going to come into the world and pay the price for sin, for your sin and my sin, if we trust in him. That he was coming into the world to bring a, a new quality of life called eternal life. That if we trust in Jesus, we are transported, born again into a new world that is God's end game. It's his goal for everything that we might be with Jesus Christ forever in heavenly glory, worshipping God without sin or sickness or Satan or, or any of the vicissitudes of this life. Suffering will have gone. That was God's end game, to send his son into the world to suffer on a cross, to rise again from the dead, and then this message to be proclaimed throughout the whole world, to all nations, to every city, even Colchester in 2023. And here we are, me talking about a carpenter who lived 2,000 years ago. See, Jesus is saying that the whole Old Testament in countless ways for Luke and for all the gospel writers is a source of certainty and safety and security because Jesus fulfills the whole Old Testament. So if we're going to become certain or convinced that Christianity is true, then the Old Testament is, a, is something we need to know about. I mean, the great thing about a treasure hunt is, is that someone has gone before you who's laid the trail, haven't they? That, that's the way that a treasure hunt works. If you want to sort of find the treasure, you need to sort of solve the clue and go into the next one, and the next one, et cetera, et cetera. Or if you're um, gaming, I, I'm told, or I, I think I'm right, gamers tell me if I'm wrong, uh, you need to solve the problems at various levels that someone else has designed for you to solve. Or follow the rules that they have designed for your enjoyment. Or if you're into orienteering, you are to follow what another has directed. And there's joy in that. There's enjoyment. There's pleasure. There's delight. Well, we are fulfilling their plan, their designs, the challenges of another. We're not just randomly kicking around trying to enjoy ourselves. No, we're following somebody else's plan. That is the treasure. That is the enjoyment. And in a very, very sort of dim, pale way, if we've come to know what God's plan is for the universe, our lives are transformed. There is treasure right in our lives, whatever they may be. There is joy and delight in knowing that we are part of a plan that is much bigger than us, that cannot be thwarted, that will happen because Jesus has died, Jesus has been raised, and Jesus is now ascended. And it's just a matter of time before all things are gathered under his rule, which is a wonderful, loving, joyful, peaceful, forgiving rule. Why would we not want to be part of his kingdom? That's what flows out of this claim that with Jesus Christ, the whole Old Testament has been fulfilled. God's promise to Abraham 4,000 years ago that there would be one person descended from him who would bless the whole world. A blessing that Jacob reiterated when he blessed his son, saying that this seed would also be a king who would come from Judah. And then he promised to David that one of his sons would reign forever on his throne. 
that his kingdom would never end. This would be brought in by the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, who would pour out his life as a sin offering, a sacrifice. He would shed his blood to bless the nations. Through a new covenant promised by Jeremiah 31, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that to Joel the prophet would be everyone. This generates certainty. How? Because he can't be faked by human beings. No human being can predict something that then happens a thousand years later, can they? Only God can do it. Only the person in control of history can predict something that will happen thousands of years later. And that, I mean, the number of prophecies in the Old Testament is in the thousands. Layer upon layer of the plan, treasure at every turn, a problem solved at every level, a path that shows he's been here before us. We're not outside the plan of God. If we're Christians, we're right in the center of the plan of God. There can be no missing God's plan, because if we've come to know Jesus Christ, if we trust in him, if we have eternal life, we're in the plan. Now, do we know this? Are you feeding this conviction as you go through the things that make you doubt? Or the things you hear that other people say, well, I, I can't be a Christian, it's just a bunch of fairy tales and it's impossible. And one of the most precious verses I know is, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. I'm part of something that God is doing in me. It's a bit like the difference between free climbing and rope descent if you're into climbing. I know most of us aren't. Uh, I know most of us rather go on these contraptions that swing you around and make you feel sick, as we were talking about. I don't understand that, but, you know, each to their own. Free climbing. I don't know if you've seen pictures of these, you know, free climbers who go up crazy heights and all they've got is a little chalk bag and they're just, oh, you know, you know if, if, if they slip, that's it. Hundreds of feet, that's it. And many die. The only thing that helps them grip is a little white bag. Madness, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I know, you know, you get an adrenaline rush. I think there's other ways of getting adrenaline rushes that are less fatal. But climbing is fun, particularly if you've got ropes and you're roped in. So that whenever you fall, the belay gets you. you. You are then, yes, left dangling and it's a little bit embarrassing, but you're not dead which I think is quite a benefit. <laughs> See, when the climber gets tired, the muscles can no longer cling on. They let go and they fall just a little way because they're held by the belay. They can begin climbing again. If we don't see ourselves as roped to this eternal plan of God, when we fall, we'll think that's it. But when we have that Holy Spirit conviction that we're part of the plan of God, that the work he's begun in us, he will bring to completion, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 8, we fall just a little way and then we're climbing again. Because we feel him holding us. He holds us fast, doesn't he? That's how we can be certain and secure. And it is experiential, but it's experiential in a different kind of way to 
and I'm not knocking the experiences of, of, of singing and of being with God's people, but when we're on our own and the music's not sort of doing the trick anymore, it's this Holy Spirit conviction. This is what all the, the writers in the New Testament were keen to communicate, is this plan, this fulfillment that Jesus, you know, as Corinthians says, Jesus is yes to all the promises of God. We need to trust in a love that doesn't always make us feel wonderful, but is wonderful because it never fails. God holds us secure in his plan by his power. Jesus Christ has fulfilled the Old Testament. That's why we can be certain. So if we're lacking certainty, can I encourage you? Get into the Old Testament. It's, it's been fascinating for me uh, reading the Bible one-to-one -one with um, Colin. You, you all know Colin. I'm sure he won't mind me uh, saying this. When was it that certainty for him grew? It's when we were going through Isaiah, written 700 years before Jesus came, and it spoke of a suffering servant. It was when we were reading Psalm 22, written 1,000 years before Jesus came, and said that there would be a man whose hands would be pierced and feet would be pierced and they would cast lots for his clothing, the Messiah. A thousand years before Jesus died on a cross. That can't be made up. can't be fake news. It's certain. And it's a certainty that modern Judaism cannot give because there's no longer any temple or any sacrifice or any priesthood in, in modern Judaism. If it's true to say that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, then any religion that does not have a sacrificial system or a sacrifice of some kind cannot forgive. It's the same in Islam. There is no sacrificial system, no shedding of blood, no sacrifice on the cross. And the Islamic claim is that Jesus never died, uh, rather Judas did. And if we're to believe a prophet that lived 500 years later and 500 miles away, here's a test. Does it fulfill the Old Testament? No. It suggests that the whole Old Testament, the whole revelation of God to the Jewish people is corrupt. Only Jesus Christ has fulfilled the Old Testament. This gives certainty in the face of other religious claims. But we can also be certain, secondly, you might want to ask some questions on that. Jesus Christ was witnessed by servants of the word. We, we can be certain because Jesus Christ was witnessed by servants of the word. So look back with me at verse 2. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. He knows that Theophilus needs to hear this. Just as they were handed down to us who by those who from the first were eyewitnesses, and servants of the word. In other words, what we are reading now, this book, the human words that have been written, was handed down to Luke and to others by those who served the message, served the word. They reported what they had seen. Now, Luke is writing in about AD 60, and we can look back or he can look back on a plethora of attempts to record what Jesus did and said. Many have been writing. We know that 10% of people were literate, and so many wrote notes of what Jesus said and did. But only four Gospels survived, not because the early church got rid of the other Gospels. 
You might have heard the Gospels of Thomas or Mary Magdalene or, or Peter. Why did the early church discount those Gospels? Well, it's not because it wanted to sort of have preferential treatment over Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. It's just they were written 150 years later. So they cannot have been written by eyewitnesses. They're Gnostic Gospels. I don't know if you've ever come across the film The Da Vinci Code. Anybody watched The Da Vinci Code? It caused a bit of a stir a few, um, a few years ago. Uh, the claim was that other Gospels were written and, and that Jesus had a bloodline. Uh, yeah. Uh, it, what, what's sad is that some people actually believe that what the Da Vinci Code, which is entertainment, was saying about Jesus and the church is true. You know, that somehow the church got rid of other Gospels that were written. No, only four Gospels have apostolic authority. Only four originate with the eyewitnesses who saw Jesus, heard Jesus, and were equipped with the Holy Spirit for the task. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, many of us will have been taught other things at school or university, won't we? Who's heard the idea that the eyewitness accounts were sort of remembered and handed down by all tradition? By kind of Chinese whispers. Anybody heard that? Uh, I went to a friend's house the other day, and uh, not, not, not part of CCC, and they said, these two chairs are, are not that strong, um, but these are fine. Um, which ones do you think I chose? You see, if we think that somehow this book is not quite accurate. It, it's been sort of passed down by all tradition, by people saying one thing to another person, and they say, no, 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 no. It's just Chinese whispers. How do we know that this is trustworthy? We do need to know that this book is not the product of Chinese whispers. It's the product of eyewitness written accounts. Now, I know this is quite radical um, in today's church. Uh, because the Western church, for about the last 200 years, has been saying that the Bible is not that reliable. You might have come across something called liberal theology, seeking to liberate people from primitive beliefs which restrict people, such as Jesus having done miracles, which is difficult to believe in our scientific age, isn't it? Or claiming to be the son of God, which is actually a pagan idea, which is linked to the Augustus cult, or rising bodily from the dead. The church is in such a mess because for 200 years the Western church has been questioning the reliability of this book. That's why it's in such a mess. That's why Christians are divided. So if we are going to be certain and confident, we need to know the truth about how this book has come into our hands. See, all liberal theology is based on the belief that Jesus only spoke Aramaic. I don't know if you know that. You might say, well, how's that, how's that important? Well, when we have Jesus' words recorded for us in Greek, are they really Jesus' words, or have they been translated from what others heard him say in Aramaic? And then they might have snuck in a few things because they were translating it so that we don't actually have what Jesus actually said. Rubbish. Jesus was multilingual. Jesus spoke Aramaic and Greek and Hebrew at least. Okay, he was a builder of the day, working in Nazareth. But six miles down the road, there was this place called Sepphoris, 
40,000 Greek speakers, lots of building work going on. And we know that the trade language of the day was Greek. If you wanted to do any trade, you had to speak Greek. Just as if in East Africa, uh, you want to do any trade, you need to know Swahili. Most people in the world today are multilingual. It was just the, the Western Academy, the people in universities in Germany and England about 200 years ago who thought, well, we only speak one language, so that must have been what Jesus was like. No. So when we hear Jesus speak in Greek words, which have then been translated for us, we are hearing what he actually said. And notes were taken. Um, just flip over the page. I know that this is not everybody's uh, cup of tea, but I think it's important that we, we at least know that the reason why we can have confidence and certainty in the New Testament is because of servants of the word, eyewitnesses who then wrote it out. I mean, one of them was Zachariah. So if you just go over the page to, um, uh, where are we? Birth of John the Baptist, so page 1026. And... Um, Remember the story that uh, Zachariah's been struck dumb because he didn't believe what the angel said would happen, that Elizabeth would, would have a baby, John the Baptist. And then when it, uh, the, John the Baptist was born, verse 61, they said to her, there is no one among your uh, relatives uh, who has that name. Because they were saying, well, you need to call him John. But, well, there's nobody in your relatives because, you know, we sort of use the names from our family tree. Verse 62, then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet. He was literate. He was a priest. Of course he was literate. But so, so was John's family, because they were a priest family, John the Apostle. We, we know that fishermen were much closer to, to modern-day professionals because they paid itemized tax returns and made contracts for the purchase of boats. Many of that early band of disciples were literate people who took down notes of what Jesus said and did. And it's all these bits of paper with writing on that Luke is referring to. They were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. People who were there. Matthew, the tax collector, who wrote the gospel. John, the apostle, who was there with Jesus in the upper room. They wrote it all down. Of course, there was oral tradition as well. But the majority of Gospels are written tradition. They've been handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And it's these things that Luke has carefully investigated. Verse 3, therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. How can we be certain, humanly speaking, because when people heard Jesus say things, they wrote it down. And it's those texts that lie behind the Gospels that have been collated and gathered by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But you say, well, I don't remember Luke being one of the disciples. Where, where, where does Luke fit in? Well, Luke was a traveling companion of Paul. Let's just keep a, a finger there and flip forward with me to Acts chapter 16. And I'm going to read from verse 8. 
In other words, Luke had access to the, the early church and he had access to all these texts, things that have been written down, and as a good historian, he sifted it and, and wrote it all down. So we could say that Luke's gospel is a bit like Paul's gospel. It's the gospel of inclusion of outsiders into the early church. So 16 verse 8. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. Um, Luke is just recording one of the missionary journeys. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia. That was the moment that Luke joined Paul in his missionary journey. It moves from third person plural, they, to first person plural, we. He was there. He was Paul's traveling companion. So back to Luke chapter 1. We can be certain because Jesus Christ was witnessed by servants of the word. So two ways that we can be certain. We can be certain because of fulfillment of the Old Testament. We can be certain because we have access, yes, by English translation, we have access to what Jesus actually did and said, recorded for us by those who were actually there. If any university or school teaches that Jesus only spoke in Aramaic, they're at least 50 years out of date with respect to scholarship. But they're also ignoring what the Bible actually teaches. But we could say, well, okay, so the Old Testament is fulfilled by Jesus and Jesus Christ was witnessed by servants of the word who've then passed it on to us. But it'd still be lacking if that's all we believed. Why? Because Luke is trying to suggest to us that the way in which we encounter the living word of Jesus now, the spiritual words, is, is only through the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has so enabled those first eyewitnesses to remember and to write down by inspiration. Many of us will understand what that means. It's like God breathes out what he wants to say to everybody throughout time through particular chosen people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is where Luke begins in his gospel. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 41. Chapter 1, verse 41. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And in a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. And Luke 1, verse 67, his father, Zechariah, remember the one who hadn't believed, who got it all wrong, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, and off he goes. And then chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was tempted in the wilderness. And then chapter 4, verse 17, he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him in Hebrew. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled 
in your hearing. In other words, Christian certainty, it's a fulfillment of the Old Testament. It's through the eyewitness accounts, but it doesn't happen without the Holy Spirit, without him at work in me, in us, uh, in all of us as we read the Scriptures and hear the voice of the living Lord Jesus say to us, today, these things have been fulfilled in him, what he's done in his death on the cross, what he's done in his resurrection from the grave and his ascension to heaven. So let's just pray, shall we, that the Holy Spirit would work in each one of us now. I'm just going to invite us all, in, in a sense, to have a, have a moment of quiet that we might afresh, through the pages of the Bible, but not without the power of the Holy Spirit, have a deep conviction that these things are true. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you that you are the Christ. You are the anointed one who dwells in heavenly glory now. Thank you that you and you alone pour out the Holy Spirit on your people. That you alone send your Holy Spirit into the hearts of, of all those you are calling to yourself. That by your Holy Spirit you give us joy in the face of suffering. Peace in the midst of turmoil. Trust in the face of illness, grace in the face of broken relationship. Lord Jesus, for your glory, grant us the conviction, the certainty that your Holy Spirit brings, we pray. Amen.